0: Procter and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal, and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France, on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. The regular tickets are still available for 100 euros. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit Codemesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCIONALGEEGREE10. Most of the speakers have been announced and this year's lineup looks really solid, so do check it out. Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland, with keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new UNF conference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. And as I've had a number of people inquire in the past, after a number of months working to resolve issues around the switch to using only HTTPS, Functional Geekery is back in iTunes. So if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you want to leave a rating and a review now on iTunes again, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eros Proctor. And this week with us, we have Scott Volashen. Scott, would you mind giving everyone a little bit of background about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, I've been a programmer for quite a long time. Quite, I've got gray hair. And I started programming back in the 80s, so that really dates me. And I've used many, many programming languages. I started off with actually DBASE 2, using on a K-Pro CPM machine. That really dates me. And then I have done many, many languages. currently. I'm into F-sharp, and I have a website, F# Fun And and that's where I put things, where I'm trying to learn things myself, and I make posts, and people seem to find them useful, so that's nice. And I'm sure we'll go into my background a bit more, but that I think that's probably enough about me for now.
0: And we've had a number of guests mention your name. I've seen you float around via various posts of F-sharp for Fun and Profit a couple that get caught up pretty frequently was you had a trolling post about why functional programming <laughs> is not viable. And I, I will occasionally see that be brought up and passed around with a bunch of people reacting to it and not realizing it's a parody. And so I've seen that you float around, so it's good to finally get you on and talk because I'm assuming you also had a bunch of different background, as I mentioned in the pre-call, because on your site you give a list of no-no keywords that are, very technical and mathematical looking. Some of those I recognize, some of those I don't. And so I assume you have a bunch of experience as well. So you've got a long, rich history. How did you get first exposed to functional programming? Was F-Sharp your main intro, or was there some other stuff that came around?
1: Actually, that's an interesting... uh, F-Sharp was my first proper functional programming language. But many of the languages I've used in the past have had functional features, including Smalltalk... Which I used to use back in the 90s, and I'm a very big Smalltalk fan. But one of the things about it is there was a lot of stuff in Smalltalk where you would pass, basically, it would be equivalent to higher order functions. If you wanted to sort a collection, you would pass in a function to do the comparison. And if you wanted to print something or group something, you would pass in another function. They weren't called functions, they were called blocks. But when I came to use F and there were things like list.map and list.collect and list.filter, it's like, yeah, I already totally understand how all that works because that's how other languages would do it. I also used to do a lot of Python and Python has quite a few functional features in it, even though apparently some of the people don't like functional programming. It's actually a pretty good functional programming language. So yeah, I had a lot of experience with some of the concepts, but of course being thrown into the deep end, when you use a kind of serious functional language like uh, f then you immediately have to deal with things like currying and partial application. That was a whole new thing. And things like uh, sum types, that was a whole new thing. So that definitely took a while to get my head around. And just and wor- learning to work with immutability, that was very hard if you're coming from an OO background, very hard indeed. So I have a lot of sympathy for people who are learning <laughs> functional programming. So how did you first get
0: exposed to f then, if that was your first proper functional programming language?
1: Well, I've always been a bit of a, a language geek. I always like to learn new languages. And I guess about maybe eight years ago, uh, 2008, yeah, I was getting fed up of, I wasn't getting fed up of c but I was a .NET programmer then. I was doing a lot of C-sharp. And I thought, well, this functional programming thing sounds cool. Where can I learn more about it? And then it turned out that there was a functional programming language, which was for .NET. And it's like, and it was already in Visual Studio and actually you had to download it then. But a couple of years later, it was actually part of Visual Studio. So I didn't really have to do anything. And it's like, oh, this is great. And it's, I thought, well, I just used it because it was there, basically. Those days, it's hard getting Haskell to run on a Windows box or OCaml. So F-sharp was basically picked by default because it was already on my machine. <laughs>
0: And when you were looking at that, you mentioned Haskell and OCaml. What were some of the other languages that you were looking at at that point before you ultimately decided on F-sharp for the availability
1: factor? Yeah, well, I mean, I just I didn't really know very much about functional programming. I mean, I'd heard of Haskell, i have heard of Miranda actually going back even when I was a long time ago. But yeah, I was just... I thought about using Haskell, but I just those days it was just it was really hard to install, and you had to like have a a Linux box and you had to compile it from source and it was just you know these things were painful, so I think I would have picked yeah I'm just lazy I think like a lot of people that's lazy it was it was there it was convenient to install I didn't have to learn one of the things I've learned in the past is learning a new language is one thing, but then you also have to learn all the libraries that go with it and the ecosystem that goes with it and the tool chain that goes with it. And it's hard enough learning a language, but if you have to completely learn how to compile something and how to, you know, the libraries are completely different, and it's like, there's a lot of pain there. So having a language on the same platform that I was already used to, that was a big plus for me because, again, that was a whole bunch. I didn't have to learn a new editor. I didn't have to learn a new compiler and so on.
0: And then you start getting into F-Sharp. You mentioned some of the things about some types and some of the differences in that way of thinking and immutability. Do you remember what that feeling was like when you first started picking up F Sharp and started learning it? I don't know what the resources were around that time because it sounds, I remember hearing it somewhere around that time, but it was very, very, very edge in the .NET community as well. So what was some of that first exposure like when you were having to pick this up and make the transition to starting to think in a more functional way than you were getting with, C sharp because I think lambdas were just even coming out right around that time too, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, lambdas are okay because, like I said, I've been Python has lambdas and and Smalltalk has the equivalent of lambdas, and I think the the probably the very hardest thing is immutability because it's like, how do I even do a loop? Here's my thing. How can I how can I just add up you know a list of numbers when I can't have a mutable value? That's like impossible, <laughs> you know. So I think that was Yeah, and then looking at partial application, it's like where the other parameters gone. There was yeah, it was definitely a mind-stretching experience, and it took me compared with all the various other languages I've learned, it took me a lot longer. Most languages, you know, if you know Python, you can pick up Ruby. If you know C sharp, you can pick up Java. Most kind of OO slash imperative language are similar, other than the libraries. But it was definitely a functional language is definitely a stretch those days, though, there was a guy, Brian, who I think worked at Microsoft. He had a really helpful blog. There were a couple of people whose probably whose blogs I was basically devoured because they were very helpful. But I also learned a lot by reading Haskell bloggers and OCaml bloggers, because especially OCaml, Jan Minsky from Jane Street, I learned a lot from him. He's got a, a lot of blog posts about using OCaml. And the concepts, obviously, the syntax is slightly different, but the, the concepts of The classic thing of making illegal states unrepresentable is straight out of him. So you can pick up stuff, but it was basically a lot of pain. One of the reasons I started my blog was to, in my experience, the best way to learn something is to try and explain it to other people. And so I set up the blog really as a way of forcing myself (laughs) to learn it because I felt very uncomfortable writing a blog post about something if I didn't really understand it. So my blog posts are really my way of writing down what I've learned as I learn it. And so writing a blog actually was probably the most important way that I learned the language because the the early blog posts I'm not so happy with, to be honest, because I didn't quite know what I was doing and I probably would have done things differently now. But yeah, that was in terms of learning. That was probably the most useful thing for me,
0: although I'm sure it's, kind of a good feeling to go back and as much as you kind of shake your head in despair about those early blog posts to go back and see that evolution and the difference of what you were thinking then versus how you've come through now i'm sure right
1: yeah yeah i mean there's nothing that i'm sort of ashamed of but there's stuff where i was thinking yeah i would maybe i would explain things differently now that i once you have a bit more experience you can look back and say well of course it's obvious this this way but there's something valuable about being naive. You know, there's the classic joke about the, the professor who is doing a math theorem and he puts up some really complicated equation on the board and he says, uh, oh, this is obvious. And then he looks at it and then he goes away for 10 minutes and scribbles furiously. And he comes back after 10 minutes and says, yeah, yeah, it, actually it is obvious. But that's the problem. When you become too expert at something, it's so easy to think that things are obvious. And to put yourself in the mind of a, a beginner is quite hard.
0: Well then there's the flip side of the value of a novice and being able to have those still for other novices because maybe that's still well incomplete, more comprehensible to someone else at that point.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean I try and write my blog, and this is we'll we'll probably get onto this topic of forbidden words in a minute, but I definitely try and write my blog for people who don't have a math degree, who are not necessarily academic, they're just like working programmers and they just want to get stuff done and they don't really care about the theory and i have a lot of sympathy for that point of view and so i really try and avoid saying you know oh this just follows naturally from category theory i stay away from that at one point i refused to use the word monad at all on my blog and i eventually sort of gave in on that because people kept asking me what's a monad (laughs) but i still very reluctant to use jargon because it's like people don't care about jargon; they care about getting stuff done. Or the, or the certainly the people I hang around with, or the people that my you know, sort of target audience. There's lots and lots of blogs for academics out there. There's no shortage of Haskell blogs that will give you the mathematics if you care about it. There aren't too many functional programming blogs which focus on the non-mathematical side of things. You know,
0: and that's one of the things that I liked about your blog was that you do. St- at least on some of the ones I've seen, you still do touch on the mathematics, but you take the mathematics and you apply it down and distill it. So it becomes a little bit more comprehensible for someone who's not steeped in the mathematical background, the category theory background, and all that. But before we get into that, you mentioned Haskell and O'Camel as other sources and on Minsky and the like. So as you're digging through and you've pulled all this stuff out, I'm assuming and this kind of gets to the blog, was you found a lot of these deeper resources, but you had to figure out how to distill it down yourself. Is that kind of your learning route yeah, then?
1: I I basically had to learn it. I had to like translate Haskell into F sharp. And that was <laughs> that's an interesting challenge as well, especially but yeah, I basically had to try and figure out what they were talking about. And not even if understanding... I mean, I have a math degree. I'm not frightened by math myself. But the thing about math stuff is it's it's very abstract, you know. And one of the things you get when you get a math degree, you get trained as a mathematician. It's all about, here's the definition. Here's a five-page definition of some sort of thing. They don't talk about why it's useful. You know, it's interesting, but the usefulness is not really the point of it. I think most programmers, it's like before you even tell me the theory, why don't you tell me why I should even care? So I had to try and figure out why do people care about monads and monoids and applicatives and stuff? What's the point? I mean, it's like very interesting, but from a practical point of view, why should I even care about this stuff? So I've, I have definitely tried in my blog posts, not use the jargon, but just explain, here's a problem, here's how you solve the problem. And then Here's another problem, and here's you, here's another solution for a different kind of problem. And by the way, these two solutions have something in common, and you evolve. It's like, oh, that's an interesting pattern. You know, now we've got two things which have a sort of similar pattern, and then that becomes uh, – you know, programmers are very good at seeing patterns, and that's another kind of something where they do have something in common with mathematicians. It's like it's all about pattern matching. You know, what, how what do these things have in common? But the patterns are not necessarily as abstract as mathematical objects like monads and so on. And
0: so you're translating these ideas from Haskell and from OCaml. And while OCaml, I've heard, is or some of the ML is pretty familiar as far as F-sharp goes, because it's very much based on that style of family, if it's not... Because I've also heard people say, well, it's like ML for .NET, but not quite. And so as you translate this stuff, have, did you find you were bringing a lot of new ideas back into the F-Sharp community by having to understand some of the stuff from Haskell and OCaml? Was there a lot of new introductions that you were finding that says, hey, this part of F-Sharp still hasn't actually brought in these ideas?
1: I don't think there are there a lot of people who are cleverer than me in the F-Sharp community and who do have academic backgrounds in computer science and so on. And some of those people have been posting about F-Sharp for longer than I have. So I don't think that I've brought anything particularly clever into the mix. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things also, especially the stuff in Haskell, F-Sharp doesn't have some of the things that Haskell has, like higher kind of types and so on. So things like monads are harder to do. In F sharp, because there's just the, you know, the language doesn't really have a support for it. It's a, it's a kind of simpler language. I think there's pros and cons actually, because there's stuff you can't do. There's actually a benefit in being restricted in what you can do. It's a bit like Perl versus Python. If you can do like anything, you end up with a lot of complicated stuff. And I actually quite like languages which are opinionated and and actually don't allow you to do stuff because it turns out you can 99% of the stuff you can do. And there's a few things that you can't really do so easily. But I'm willing to live with that.
0: And right there at the end is kind of what I was wondering and getting about, is while you might not have all the functionality from some of this stuff, but by trying and explaining it and putting it in terms of stuff that other people coming in F-Sharp would know and be able to understand, did you find that some of those ideas, while the language may already have supported them or may not support them, you were able to still bring those ideas To the community at large and have found differences in the way that F sharp is used because, and one of the things I'm thinking is the concept of Khaleesi arrows, which we'll get into, but you're talking about your, it's based off your blog post of railway oriented programming. And while I don't get Khaleesi arrows completely, I don't know if that's something F sharp has or if that's something that you say, well, here's how you apply it to F sharp. So you get the same kind of stuff you get in. Haskell or some of these things, but you can still do this in a manner of speaking because the principles are the same.
1: Yeah, the principles are the same. I think that's the important thing. To me, you know, the code, clever code is not the point. The point is just to to see the patterns, to see the principles. And when you see that thing, I can see it's kind of like object oriented patterns. It's when the OO Gang of Four book came out, they were just putting labels to things that people were already doing. But it's kind of nice when you can have a label for something. You can say this is the kind of pattern or the technique that you're using. Functional programmer people tend to hate the whole pattern thing, but I do think that something like a monad is a pattern because, especially in languages without higher kind of types, it's just a you can't get it for free. You have to like implement it, you know, over and over. So it is quite similar to a to a pattern. But yeah, something like a Kleisli. I don't really care about. Cleisley, Arrows, and I don't care about Monad so much. I care about the fact that you have a problem, you want to compose these functions in a simple way. There's a various technique or a pattern for doing that. And it just happens to be called, you know, in Scala, it's called Cleisley and so on. But it's not very helpful to someone to say, oh, yeah, just use Cleisley Arrows. It's like, no, that doesn't really solve the problem. And I think there's another distinction, which is it's the difference between giving somebody tools and giving them a recipe. So if I'm trying to make a loaf of bread, you might just say, well, it's obvious. You just, you know, take some flour and water and yeast and mix together. You're done. And it's like, well, that's those are the bits, those are the ingredients, but that doesn't actually tell me how to do it. It's not very helpful to just say use a monad. So what? That's not very that's not really a, something I can take and run with, you know. But if you say use bind to turn these kinds of functions into these other kind of functions and then use a a sum type to represent the errors, and then to turn these kinds of functions, the other kinds of functions you use: map and return and reply, and you know, if you want to do validation, there's a whole kind of toolkit you can use, and how you use these tools to solve a problem is actually much more useful for, th- for people than just saying, "Oh, it's obviously it's just a monad. go you know deal with it." I think that's why some people think the functional programmers are kind of unhelpful sometimes, because sometimes you get that kind of response on a, on a forum where they say, just use a monad, and it's like, it really doesn't help people at all.
0: And so we kind of brought up the Klysee arrows, mm-hmm. and that's based off your blog post of Railway Oriented Programming, which a number of people have referenced. And so some of that is just the pattern of how you figure out how to keep passing through well, good and Compose, because that uses the pipeline operator Animator speaking in F sharp, correct?
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just how, I mean, that particular, for people who are not familiar with the railway oriented programming concept, is the idea of having a two track railway. One track is success and the other track is failure. And some functions have one input and two outputs. They have something goes in and it might, you might be shunted onto the failure track and you might be on the success track. And the question is, you have these functions with one input and two outputs, and how do you glue them together? Because you can't just compose them together, they don't fit. So bind is one way of doing it, or you can use Klyse-Lee as another way of doing it. Then you actually have a concrete problem of how do I pass errors down a pipeline, and how do I work with that? And that's, that's actually got nothing to do with monads, because this is not a specific instance, a specific problem of error handling. So the whole railway-oriented programming thing is not really about Monad. It's about how do you do error handling? It's a two-track model for error handling. It's a very practical thing. And I gave it a catchy name because when I first did it, I thought that was just really stupid. I thought everyone would just laugh at me. (laughs) But people seem to like it, you know. But it's not meant to be a Monad tutorial. It's not meant to be everything. It's about error. It's just meant to be a particular approach to dealing with error handling in a functional way. Now, some of the lessons, there's a pattern there. It's like I said before, once you've learned that technique, you can then say, well, that's interesting because when I have other kinds of things, I can use very, very similar techniques to dealing with state or for dealing with async or for dealing with configuration. And it's like, oh, that's kind of quite similar. And then you start kind of connecting the dots between these different ways. And then you can say, okay, that's called a monad. But there's no point kind of hitting people with the jargon You know, so in that particular article, I don't use the word Monad anywhere.
0: And so you have a number of posts like this and you've gotten great reception and you've also gone out and given a bunch of talks and presentations about getting started, getting up to speed with functional programming. If you've never been familiar, what have been some of the things that you found people have been most receptive to in the things that you've talked about? or in your articles that people have come back and said, hey, thanks for that. That's a great metaphor. That really helped me click for people who might be listening to this and are still at the peeking their head into the uh, playground and seeing if this is somewhere they want to play or having just stepped onto the playground and still trying to get an idea of these concepts.
1: Yeah. Well, I did a talk called FP Patterns, Which was basically a brain dump, an hour long brain dump of everything I could think about, starting from the very basics of what is a function and then talking about composition, talking about how do you do dependency injection, what is a continuation, and then monads and then monoids. Basically, it's just a big brain dump. It's very, very quick, but people have said they've kind of useful because, again, I have lots and lots of pretty pictures. One of the things I like to do in my talks is have lots of diagrams, lots of pictures of railway track or pictures of arrows and things pointed to other things. And I hope that if people find that useful because, you know, I find that useful. But another one that people might find interesting is it's one that actually has no code in it. It's about domain-driven design with types. And it turns out that if you have a nice type system like F-sharp or Haskell or OCaml, uh, basically with, with uh, product types and, and some types, you can do some really nice domain-driven design whereby you can actually capture a lot of the business logic of the domain in the type system before writing a line of code. Uh, So things things like optional types can decide, well, this thing's not optional and this thing is optional, that you can make that very clear in the code. You can have these little wrapper types, like this has got to be a string 25 because it's got to be put in a database. You can do things where, you know, this is a verified customer, this is an unverified customer. You can use a, a, some type or a, a discriminated union for that. And so you can actually capture all this stuff and really capture the entire domain in a couple of pages of code. And the idea is then you would then verify that domain with the customer or the business user, who business analyst, whoever it is, before you start writing code. So it really ties very well into the whole concept of domain-driven design and the ubiquitous language that you work with. Um, And I actually think that's quite an exciting way of designing code. And that's really got nothing to do with functional programming, but functional programming languages with type systems like that make it really easy to do because it's so compact that, you know, unlike something like C Sharp or Java, you can literally put the entire design on a few pages of paper, which is great, you know. So I would encourage people to look into that. There's That's a very friendly one. There's no code. There's no functional, no monads or anything in that one.
0: And you bring up your presentations of all your diagrams and pretty pictures. And that reminds me, that is probably one other place that people might know you from without actually knowing you is you had one of your slides, which has apparently made the rounds a number of times on at least Twitter, from what I've seen about functional programming and patterns where you go down the object-oriented side of patterns and then down the functional programming side of patterns. So if anybody's seen that slide, that was one of yours, was it not?
1: That was from my functional patterns talk. And what's interesting is people from both sides got very passionate about that slide, even though, of course, it's taken out of context from a talk. Yeah, what I was trying to say there was, you know, you have these funct- uh, object-oriented patterns like strategy and decorator pattern and the visitor pattern and all these kinds of things. And in functional programming, it's, uh, you know, it's just a function. And then the visitor pattern is just a function. And then the strategy pattern is just a function. But my point of that is that it's not very helpful, you know, because sometimes functional people do say that. It says there are no patterns in functional programming. Everything is just functions. And in some sense, that's true, but it's not very helpful. And that was the sort of point of my slide is you is when you're learning functional programming, you basically have to have a completely different mindset. It's like learning, you know, like learning Chinese. If you're an English speaker, you can't just learn Chinese by saying, well, what's the English equivalent of that word? What's the English equivalent of that word? You basically have to you know, immerse yourself in a certain way of thinking, and only then can you really dive in and get comfortable in that kind of way of approaching something. So I think it's the same thing with learning functional programming. It's a very different culture. The things that you're used to in OO are just not there, and it's not worth trying to port the same concepts. There's enough other concepts you have to learn You know, like a good example is how do you do loop? If I'm learning a new language, if I'm learning PHP or I'm learning JavaScript, I say, well, how do you do a loop? You know, how do you assign a variable? How do you define a method? Once I understand that, I can pretty much start programming. But what happens if there isn't a loop? What happens if I can't assign a variable because it's immutable? You basically have to throw away everything you know and go back to square one. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's quite painful for beginners coming to functional programming. But I do think the best way to be successful is to throw away everything you know. It's literally, I think a beginner program who knew nothing would actually find it easier than some people who try and bring OO concepts with them. And I've heard
0: telltale of talking to previous guests who've talked to more junior people through some of the bridges or people straight out of college without a lot of experience that have kind of lend the credence to that concept about if you don't have all this baggage the baggage is what makes it hard. And without that baggage, you can get up to speed on these concepts relatively quickly.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, a classic example is, you know, the most popular functional programming language is Excel macros. And people have no problem learning how to use Excel. You a lot of people teach themselves Excel macros. They don't think they're learning a functional programming language. That's the kind of thing. If people don't know what it is, they're not going to be intimidated by it. And I do think that, yeah, if you're a complete beginner, a lot of that stuff will be kind of obvious, especially if you use a lot of metaphors about functions being pipes with inputs and outputs, and you glue them together and stuff. People say, yeah, that's kind of obvious. But it's very once you've got a lot of OO stuff under your belt, it's really hard to unlearn everything you already know. Yeah.
0: And then you've got, with this learning path and your site, one of the things I didn't realize, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I ask this because you've also announced that you've got your Sharp for Fun and Profit site or some of the posts done as an ebook format now. I've seen bits and pieces of your site, but is there a narrative to the F sharp for fun and profit from taking you more from straight intro to being able to function on this or are these mainly independent ideas that are kind of correlated? How is someone looking at your site and where does that ebook fall in for having the offline mode on of your site?
1: Yeah, so the ebook, people kept nagging me. They wanted to read the site offline if they were commuting or they're on a plane or something. And a couple of, I guess about a month ago now, someone really nagged me hard <laughs> and said, you, you know, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. So I said, no, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. So yeah, because my site is all markdown files, I could just load it into this website called Gitbook which basically compiles the markdown files and makes an EPUB or a PDF out of them. So, yeah, I did organize it. My site is roughly organized. There is a couple of series. There's a beginner series, like a YF sharp series, which kind of browse. It just skips over all the main features of F sharp, which is a kind of good way to get a handle on the language as a whole. And then I have a series on understanding functions. And then I have a whole, another series on understanding types. And then one on F-sharp syntax. And then I have various ones on bits and pieces like the state monad and, and the railway-oriented programming. So yeah, they did organize the content so that the book is sort of beginning. It reads in an order. So you could sort of start at the beginning. But the site is not really designed to be read that way. But I think uh, the in a funny sort of way, the book is actually more linear so people are finding the book useful just as a way to get into it because there is a kind of a linear structure to it and the site isn't like a blog it's kind of reverse order, the most recent posts at the front and therefore what you really want to start is with the oldest posts but the git book and the site are exactly it's exactly the same content but yeah the git book might be more useful to people if they kind of want a, a kind of linear thing but it's not designed it's not wasn't really never designed as a book there's no exercises and, you know, there's duplicate content and gaps in the content and so on. Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, people say they find it useful. So I'm always open to feedback. If people download it and they've got some questions, they can you know please let me know. And it was more about
0: that getting started and getting up and running because I saw that and it looked like it would be a good guide for someone who's wanting some of the intro to some of the concepts, even if it's not F-sharp, because I know that from some of the posts I've seen, you've tried to make some of the stuff as language agnostic as possible, and just basically talk about the principles.
1: Yeah, a lot of the sites, yeah, I mean, for example, I have a a thing called the Monadster, Dr. Frankenfunctor and the Monadster, which is about the state monads. And again, it's really the concepts are the important thing, and the language is secondary. Yeah, so you could totally take those concepts and apply them to C Sharp or JavaScript or any other language. The same with the well oriented programming one, that's the, that's the concept. Some people have been using that in Swift, for example, or Ruby and stuff. It's funny because a few years ago, I did an April Fool post, and I basically told everybody that my site was closing down, and I was switching to using Scala. And I set up a website, ScalaForFunAndProfit.com, and I copied my content over, and I literally did a search and replace. where Every time it said F-sharp, I replaced it with Scala. And and you know that kind of thing. So it's exactly the same content with everything changed, and it was meant to be a, an April Fool site. But people keep running across it even today, and saying, "Oh, this is a great site for explaining functional concepts in Scala," even even though the code is is still in F Sharp. You know, so yeah, even other people do find it useful. I do try and be language agnostic. Obviously, the code samples were in F# but the the concepts are the same. Just like in any, just like in OO patterns. I mean, in in the OO Gang of Four book, they have it in C++ in Smalltalk. You know, pretty extreme language difference there, but the concepts are the same.
0: And as you mentioned, you start to get into some of these more advanced topics partly because people nag you and ask you and say, "Hey, when are you going to explain this?" Like you mentioned with the monads, of Scott, Scott, <laughs> help me understand monads. That's right. Yeah. So I'm assuming some of those words that are on your no-no list will eventually be removed off. Do you have any plans inherently for some of those you would like to tackle first or think would be easier tackling first from a perspective of these are still important ideas and whether it's endo-functor or something else or even just basic functor or whatever, to bring those ideas out and say... This is one of those no-no words, but I'm going to try and explain it to you so you understand what this is.
1: Yeah, I have a series on monoids, which is another jargony math word. And it's a sort of a shame. Well, I mean, again, there's a big debate between the the kind of mathy functional programmers and the non-mathy. Personally, I do think it's a little off-putting for for all these words to have a mathematical background, like monads and monoids and so on. But I do have a series on monoids and i haven't finished it yet and at some point i will get into endofunctors. and i was in fact going to finish it off by explaining that a monoid is just a monad in the category sorry a monad is just a monoid in the category of endofunctors, which is a funny thing that people sort of pass around but at some point i do sort of want to explain that because it's not as hard as it sounds so yeah one day but it's not very useful you know, it's fun, but it's it's kind of silly. I mean, it's good if you're a mathematician, it's quite important. But uh, as a programmer, I'm not quite sure how relevant it is to your day-to-day job, you know.
0: And some of that just being, even if it's an endofunctor, which I don't really understand what that definition is myself, but to understand that, oh, these are things that are what this thing is and whatever that jargony term is, in the same way that you have something that explains when someone talks about the factory or the singleton or whatever else from these design patterns that again, these are just patterns. And if you know what this is, then you have the chance to quantify and use it because you understand how this applies in the same way that understanding some of the type theory applies and says, okay, now I realize that as you said, I can start to eliminate certain classes of errors because those types are unrepresentable.
1: Yeah. I have another series, which I call the elevated world series. And it's the idea is that these parallel worlds to your normal values, like the option world or the list world or the async world, and then you have functions that go between the normal world and these elevated worlds, and there's various tools for working with these kinds of functions. If you have a kind of a diagonal function, a world-crossing function that starts off with an integer on this side and ends up with a list on the other side, or an async on the other side. How do you work with these world-crossing functions? So I have a whole bunch of stuff with that. And I think that's something that's really helpful. And it's an analogy that's easy for people to understand. The fact that these things are you know, functors or categories, I don't think people care. I'd, I'd rather use a kind of analogy that people can get their heads around. It. So, yeah, it's kind of nice. I think people want to know what a functor is. They want to know just because they've heard all the Haskell people talk about it. But I'm not. I'm not convinced that it's that important. But I mean, I'm, this is there is definitely a schism, and I'm just going to go on a little rant here, if you don't mind. <laughs> There's definitely a schism between what you might call the mathematically oriented computer scientists and the humanistic computer scientists. So people who put math first versus people who put people first. So a good example is of a, of a mathematical person is someone like Dijkstra, you know, who's like the god of being formal methods and, you know, you need to prove things and there's no room for inaccuracy or fuzziness. It's just, you're just not thinking clearly if you're doing stuff like that. On the other side, there's people like Seymour Papert and Alan Kay, who are all about the human side of programming and how do people learn things and what, how can we use programming as a creative tool to make the world a better place? and you know there's not a lot of math in that and it's not really about proving things i mean if you know where you want to go there's another analogy like it's the difference between being efficient and being effective if you're going in a certain direction you want to get there as efficiently as possible and you want to go there in like in programming you want to get there as correctly as possible and that's using types using theorem provers and whatever but if you're going in the wrong direction, there's no, you know, there's no point even using those tools. And it's to me, it's more important going in the right direction than being correct. Obviously, correctness is an important part of things, very important part of things. But I don't think our problems in software are to do with not having correct programs. Obviously, security is a big exception to that. We need, definitely need better security. But most of our things is because people are designing software that nobody really wants, or they're not really listening to customers and so on and so forth. So I'm definitely on the side of the humanists. So I guess it's quite unusual for the functional programmer to be a humanist programmer as opposed to a mathematical programmer, but that's I'm planting my flag in the sand there, and that's uh, my approach to explaining and teaching functional programming is to take it from that angle.
0: And that's a useful and informative angle to me, because... I'm not sure where I fall on that scale because I've got the geek background that says, hey, yeah, I want to understand some of these mathematical concepts. I'm not quite sure how they'll fit in, but they are still tools that might be useful to have in my tool belt. But the flip side also says that we need to be able to write the software that people can read and understand because... The next person to come after you, whether that's you in six months at 3 a.m. on a emergency fire call that you got paged for in the middle of the night or someone else, because software gets passed through the hands of many people, needs to be read and understood. There's that balance there. And so it's kind of that concept of something I heard that a number is a ring, but we don't talk and teach about rings. We teach about numbers. And so you can still work without knowing this higher abstraction.
1: That's right. You don't need to know about how numbers are rings to do, to add two numbers together. Or they're monoids. It's like, who cares? I'm just adding two numbers together. Actually, as a computer person, it's more important to know about overflow, stuff which is not mathematical. I mean, computers are not very good at being pure math machines because there's all sorts of little hiccups, floating points have nans, and you have almost all languages, including Haskell, for exceptions – programs it's not it's useful to sort of steal stuff from math but you have to be aware it's a leaky abstraction to think that programs are like math i think there's too many practical things and so yeah i do agree that being too clever the whole point of a math proof is to be concise and elegant and if it takes a day to understand it that's fine because you're reading a math proof. you're not expecting to try and understand it straight away part of the thing is to figure it out that's not the same thing for code. I think that code should be written as in a very, very simplistic, it should be, you know, like a elementary reading level. It's like, you know, like you rate books and stuff and how how many long words they use, you know. And it's true if you're reading a, a Henry James novel or David Foster Wall or something like that. It's fine to use lots of long words, but if you're, you know, you, you really want the equivalent of a comic strip when you're writing software, you really want it to be able to be understood by anybody. You don't want to be using long words It's meant to be as boring as possible. I'm a great believer in writing boring code. So, yeah. Now, things like types, on the hand, are very useful because, as you say, the stupidest programmer that I work with is myself, and six months from now, I'm going to be working on some code that I wrote, and I'm not going to understand it, and that's where the static type system is very helpful. It's going to prevent me doing something stupid, and that's when I really appreciate that kind of thing, and I also really appreciate trying to design the types in such a way that I can't do something stupid like using option types and that kind of thing. That's saving my sanity later on. So I'm in favor of that. But trying to be too clever, yeah, I think there's a balance between being too clever and being useful. It might also change as programmers mature. I mean, if you look at engineering, building a bridge a thousand years ago was putting some timber over some stones, and now modern-day bridge building is incredibly complicated and you need a degree in engineering to understand everything. But we're still at the software is still at the thousand year ago stage. We're still we're very medieval. It's a craft. It's not engineering right now. So I don't think we're ready to have code that's so complicated that you need a ten year degree to understand it.
0: Yeah, it's that balance, as you said. What's the most efficient way to get there? But being able to recognize that it might be more efficient in this case just to fell a tree because we're just doing a quick and short thing, and the distance is not that far. That this tree that's right next to this river we'll cover that and let us cross the creek. But there's also the fact of maybe there are the times when we need to have the stronger bridge building because of what we're trying to cross.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A very simple example is that the difference between, you know, from a computer science point of view, you have the big O notation, and O1 is good and ON is all right, and then ON squared is bad, you know. But, you know, when you're sorting a list of 10 items... There's the theory, and then there's the practice. And it might be that an array that's bubble sorted is going to be faster than a linked list that's quick sorted, just because you've got cache lines and you've got, I don't know, it's just more complicated than, it, you know, theory and practice. In theory, theory and practice are the same, but of course, in practice, they're, they're different. So I think it's useful to know the theory, but I also think it's also useful to have like one ear on the ground. And it's good enough. And that's the thing about engineering too. I mean, a real engineer. One of the definitions of engineer, I think, is to do what anyone can do, but for do it for twice the quality and half the price. So, if you if chopping down a tree to cross the river will do it, then that's probably the fastest way to do it. You know, it's really easy to do and it works. And why you don't need to build a giant suspension bridge if you just want to cross a river. And I think as uh, software people, we need to just be aware of that. It's like, yeah, sometimes the crude things are good and. For most people, I mean, if you're working on Google or Twitter or Facebook and you've got these giant things and you're dealing with 10 zillion requests a a second, you obviously need some heavy-duty algorithms and you you need to be very aware of all this stuff. But if you're the average person, you're writing an accounting app that's used by 10 people in an office, it's more important to get the program right, get the program usable. And the fact that it takes, there's many more things you can do than spending your time worrying about certain kinds of algorithms. So we're getting close on time. There's a couple more questions I want to ask.
0: But what haven't we covered that you think we missed or didn't dive deep enough on for the audience? Is there anything inherently that you think that we probably should give more attention to?
1: Well, as functional programmers or as programmers
0: in general? Either, because I think we have some people who aren't actually functional programmers, but they're looking at some of the ideas and maybe trying to put, pull it back in, as you said, pull it back into the pythons and rubies and small right. talks where some of those ideas are still applicable.
1: Yeah, I think so from a functional programming point of view that I would say the most important thing for people who are not familiar with it is that it's not that scary. And it's really a lot of the concepts are things just taken to extreme. Like when my talk, I talk about, you know, the single responsibility principle and the interface segregation principle and if you take them to the extreme, you basically have interfaces with one method. And that's exactly what a function is. And OO people have a big thing about don't have global states and pass everything in as dependencies. And again, if you take that to the extreme, you basically have immutable data structures. Then you have functions where everything's passed in as a parameter. So, you know, there's a lot of, I think you can evolve from an OO model to a functional model. I would just encourage people not to be scared so much. And in terms of a more general thing, I would encourage everyone to stop worrying about programming languages so much and worry about some of the people stuff, you know, look into usability, read books like Don Norman's book and and the Don't Make Me Think book, because that's the stuff, in order to make successful, we're not just writing code for the sake of it, we're trying to write programs that are useful to people. And in order to do that you need to understand what people want, which means getting out of your nerdy, techy, geeky mindset and starting to thinking like a normal person. And if you can do that, I think that's definitely the best recipe for success. I think we tend to be in our little bubbles too much and I really do think we need to get out of our bubble and, and talk to the customers, get out on the street and meet some real people. It'd be helpful for all of us, I think.
0: And so with that Usability side, that's one of the things that seems to be from the software perspective of software is eating the world. We need to be usable. And that's kind of where some of these ideas that you were talking about with types and representing that is sometimes it's our job to make sure it's usable and the fact that it actually works as well. So we need to design software in a manner that makes sure that not only is it usable from a front end side, but it's usable when the software just doesn't break on you because. When you're constantly told, "Have you tried turning it off and on again?" It stops really being usable at that point,
1: too. Yeah, exactly. Making, I mean, so correct software for the sake of being correct and types as theorems—it's like, well, that's very interesting. But it is correct software is useful just in terms of making other people's life easier. If your program doesn't crash, if especially if your program doesn't have—I think the number one problem right now with software is security vulnerabilities. If your program is correctly designed so you can't actually do stupid things, that is definitely worth spending time on doing. And, if, and, and things like types can help with that. And I have a talk on capability-based design, which is kind of security and design using functions rather than data to expose APIs. So there's a lot of things we can do as developers to make better programs. And, and I think, yeah, things like types as a design tool rather than types as a theorem proving tool same thing. That's what's so cool about functional programming is that, you know, the, it's the same thing. I mean, a type as a theorem and a type as a design, you get both. The compiler does the type checking for you and you get kind of both for free. But I think focusing on focusing on the user experience and, and, um, and remember that other developers are users too. You know, usability works for other developers. You want to write code that other developers can read as well. So, yeah.
0: And since we're close to time for the allotted Schedule. We still got a little bit more, but I want to make sure we get the last few things in. Before the call, you mentioned you didn't really have anything to plug. So instead, what is kind of on your radar for things to check out? Is there new languages, new principles you're looking into? What's some of the stuff that's on your radar for things that you're interested in digging in more to and figuring out more about?
1: That is a good question. What am I, I always like to learn new things, but I've been... Doing programming for, ooh, thirty years, more than thirty years now. No, hopefully not that. Maybe not that long. But I'm not convinced. Like I say, I think what I'm interested in learning is not the more programming stuff. I think if you're, it depends how old you are. It depends how much you've been around the block. You know, if you're young, I would definitely recommend learning as many languages as possible because each programming language gives you a new paradigm, a way of thinking. So, you know, learn a functional language, but also learn small talk, also learn fourth, also learn Prologue and, and a Lisp and so on like that. But as I get older, I'm much more, like I say, I'm much more interested in the psychology of people and things like usability and how people learn things and how to convey knowledge from one person to another and how to teach. I think this is the, what I'm really interested in is learning how to be a better teacher and a, a better explainer. I think that would be my personal challenge over the next few years.
0: So can we look forward to some lessons on your blog about that as well as you start digging into lessons for being a better teacher and
1: what you've found applying these things that you take back to your blog? I don't think I'm going to put it on that blog. I might start another blog. I have quite a lot of strong opinions about how to be a good manager, for example. But I would probably call it managing for fun and profit. <laughs> but you got a brand. It's like F, that particular website is all about F-sharp. I don't sort of want to contaminate it with other things. So I would probably just leave that alone and just leave that for F-sharp stuff. But I might start doing some other sites in the future. This is, This has been an interesting journey for me. I've learned a lot in the last five years or so. And who knows where the future will go. Well,
0: that's kind of why I asked was whether or not it's the F-Sharp for front of profit or should we just be keeping an eye out for some of this stuff as you go on? And what kind of stuff might the audience be interested just as we follow you in the future to say, hey, yeah, this is other stuff that Scott is interested in besides just the F-Sharp stuff to kind of give that fuller, rounder perspective of?
1: Yeah, I've been meaning to start another blog, more personal blog On basically education, on management theory, on systems thinking, on just a lot of the ways that I don't know. Because it's like, I really don't know what I'm going to talk about until I talk about it. I find fighting blogs actually quite hard, like I say, because I'm not one of these people who just blurt out anything that pops into my head. Like people who tweet thousands and thousands of tweets every day. I'm just not that kind of person. So it takes me a week or so. Just to write one blog post, so I'm very slow. So if I did start writing about management or something, I'd probably it would take me a long time to figure out what I wanted to say. I'm not going to go half cocked on that, but no doubt people, if you know, if people are interested, no doubt people will let me know. (laughs) And so,
0: do you have a call to action for the audience, or anything you want to leave the audience
1: with? Yes. Again, I would say. If you're beginning on your kind of programming life, then learn lots of languages and don't get stuck in one paradigm and don't get stuck in kind of purest way that there's only one way to do stuff. I, I'm a great, I'm definitely a big believer in that let a thousand flowers bloom and there's lots of different ways of doing something and the more different ways you know, the better. And then, like I say, for people who've had a lot of experience, I would say definitely. Look at more of the non technical stuff, usability stuff. There's an interesting talk by Dan North called Accelerating Agile, where he's talking about, you know, he's one of the guys who came up with behavior driven development. He's a big agile guy, and he went to work for a place where they didn't follow agile practices at all, and yet they were super productive. And, you know, that's a good example of getting out of your rigid ways of thinking and just really focusing on what's important. And I just think we've got enough division. We've got enough conflict already. I just hate to see people having huge fights over trivial things. It's like, let's work together and try and actually improve the world rather than stabbing each other in the back.
0: (laughs) And with your Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom, that's one of the reasons I like doing this podcast, is to hear about those thousands of flowers that are blooming and how people are doing it, because it also reminds me of And I might misattribute this, but I think someone has attributed it to Bruce Lee, where it was the practices are many, but the principles are few. And to see from all those thousands of flowers, where the core and where the commonalities lie between those and what things are some of those fundamental ideas in the same way that you address them in your blog, where you said you were able to just take the blog post and replace F sharp with Scala, and it still holds true.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the things, as you get more experienced, you start seeing these patterns or these commonalities across many, many things, and you stop caring so much about following rules and following specific rigid guidelines. It's like, whatever works, I'm very laissez-faire. If it works for you, I'm okay with it. I'm not picky as long as you follow good practices. I'm not an absolutist. I'm very kind of liberal in what I entertain from other people. And then
0: we mentioned for fun and profit.com. Where are the other places that people can follow you online and keep up to date with what you're doing as the future progresses?
1: I'm pretty bad on social media. I basically, I don't, I'm not on Facebook. Basically, I'm on Twitter at Scott Velocian, just spelt like my name. That was a big struggle to get that particular Twitter handle. Now, of course, it was very easy. But I basically tweet very rarely uh, every time I have a new blog post, so it's not a high-volume kind of tweet. But, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a newsletter. I don't really have anything that people can follow me with. But if people do have questions, you can contact me on Twitter or there's an email on my website, uh, info at com. But I live on an island. You know, I don't live in a big city. I've kind of done that, so I'm actually very low-profile right now. I'm not particularly uh, big on getting my name forward all the time. So that's where I am right now.
0: The other way to take that is it sounds like it's going to be a high signal and low noise ratio, (laughs) at least
1: on Twitter, if someone wants to follow along with what you're doing. It certainly is. I don't tweet cat pictures and I don't tweet anything other than Programmer humor I tweet, but mostly I tweet uh, interesting blog posts, either my own or other people's. That's about it.
0: Well, with no cat pictures, we might have just lost everybody, so we might be wrapping up the episode with that anyway. (laughs) So uh, I know there's a number of people uh, out, at least... I don't know how much it applies to the listeners, but just in the general world of not a fan of cat pictures
1: and tweeting those might drop you a number of followers then. so Actually, I like cat- I'm happy to read other people's. I mean, I I enjoy cute cats and cute pets and stuff. I'm just not going to tweet them.
0: <laughs> so I'll make sure to get your Twitter account, and we'll definitely have a number of different links to different articles for your F-sharp fun and profit on there in the show notes as well. So, and then some of your videos you've linked there. So we'll put that in as well. So I'll make sure all those get added to the show notes. Excellent. I'd like to give a Jane thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Scott, for taking your time to join me today. You've been on my list for a while of people to get on, and it was great to finally get you on and talk to you about just functional programming and stuff in general instead of the F-sharp specific because it's interesting to see how this stuff applies regardless of what language you're working on. And I think you've done a great job distilling those, F- those, po- and those posts that I've seen come across the fundamentals, regardless of F sharp, even though it's on a site that's F sharp for fun and profit. So thanks for being a guest, and it was a great talking to you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.